Seven democratic powers invited India and South Africa to this week's G7 summit, but the result may not be so clear-cut. One G7 member nation in particular remains deeply involved in China's Belt and Road Initiative. For now, its next move remains to be seen. China is pushing for the largest military buildup in history, and the head of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is ringing alarm bells over it. The U.S. Air Force is on the move. That's in response to advanced fighter jets that China has developed. One South Pacific Island nation says it's standing by Taiwan. It withdrew from a United Nations conference in protest of China's threat to the island. And another country takes a similar stance, recognizing Taiwan as the only China. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma, sitting in for Tiffany this week. Amid this week's Group of Seven summit, the West is criticizing the Chinese communist regime. Leaders of the world's major democracies have urged China to use its influence with Russia and stop its invasion of Ukraine. In a G7 summit statement, they also requested that Beijing drop what they called its expansive maritime claims in the South China Sea. Those messages come alongside unprecedented levels of criticism towards Beijing's policies and human rights record. Now, a standoff appears to be brewing between the two blocs, one of them led by the U.S. and the other by Russia and China. Both are trying to expand their alliances, but who are they looking to have joined their ranks? Let's zoom in. This week's Group of Seven, or G7, summit invited India and South Africa to participate. Its democratic members appear to have a new goal, expanding their front against Beijing and Moscow. But India and South Africa may not be shoe-in allies. Both of them also attended the recently concluded BRICS virtual summit, hosted by China. BRICS members are among the most influential developing countries, China, Russia, India, Brazil, and South Africa. During the meeting last week, Beijing helped Russia to return to the international stage after its invasion in Ukraine. On top of that, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping took aim at the U.S. for expanding military alliances and over sanctions. Back in Europe, the G7 summit has been in full swing in Germany this week. Leaders from the U.S., the U.K., Canada, France, Germany, Italy and Japan, as well as the European Union, were present. Germany also invited Indian Prime Minister Modi, plus leaders from South Africa, Indonesia, Senegal and Argentina. Among the guests, India, South Africa and Senegal abstained from the UN Security Council vote on a proposal to condemn Russia. A number of the guest countries invited to the G7 are also those Putin has an eye on. During the BRICS virtual meeting, he suggested the group's five member nations should expand ties with countries in Asia, Africa and Latin America. India is one of those caught in the middle of the two blocs, trying to balance relations between Russia and Western countries. Despite the robust trade between India and China, an ongoing border dispute and a violent clash in recent years has both countries in defense mode. At the same time, Russia is a major source of weapons and energy for India. Beyond India, Indonesia is also in the spotlight, as it is slated to host the G20 summit later this year. Russian President Putin already confirmed he would attend. Indonesia also invited Ukrainian President Zelensky. Nations around the world are responding to a new infrastructure plan. The Group of Seven or G7 member nations represent the world's wealthier democracies. 
Leaders from those countries made an announcement over the weekend that $600 billion would be invested in developing countries. The move seeks to counter the Chinese regime's expansion there, especially through its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative. W. Gude Moore is a former minister from Liberia, Africa. He told the South China Morning Post that Africa has the greatest need for infrastructure improvement in the world. He welcomed the G7 proposal, but voiced doubts it would actually happen. Under former President Trump, the U.S. introduced the Prosper Africa Initiative, but the administration could not carry out the plan before leaving office. On the other hand, Beijing has built ports, railways, highways and power dams in Africa for years through the Belt and Road Project. The G7 infrastructure plan supported by the Biden administration largely plans to address four main areas, climate and clean energy, telecommunications, gender equity and health systems, including vaccine manufacturing. News of President Biden's $200 billion infrastructure pledge has made a splash amid the G7 summit. The plan is part of U.S. efforts to counter the Chinese regime. Next, let's zoom in on Italy, the only G7 member that's also a partner to Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. Here's more. Italy announced its membership in China's Belt and Road Initiative in 2019. The news soon sparked disapproval from the U.S. and EU leaders. Under the deal, China promised to invest more than $210 billion in Italian infrastructure. Unlike other G7 countries, Italy has been grappling with serious financial dilemmas for years. Since 2009, the Italian government's credits and debts have been in crisis. When China became the third largest economy that same year, Italy turned to China for help. The country sought more opportunities to boost exports and develop tourism hoping to raise its economy. But Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative hasn't made as big of a difference in China-Italy economic collaboration as planned. Most of these successful developments between the two nations were achieved before Italy joined the Belt and Road, and a number of other to-do list items were underfulfilled. That's including the space station coalition between the two countries. On the other hand, what roles do the U.S. and EU play in the Italian economy? According to the UN ComTrade database, more than half of Italy's exports were sent to countries within the EU in 2021. It also shows that 10% of Italian goods go to the United States, compared to 3% that go to China. On top of that, when Italy was hit by COVID-19 in early 2020, the U.S. authorized up to $100 million to assist the Italian government. The Chinese Communist Party is having its largest military buildup in history since World War II. That's according to Admiral John Aquilino, commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Speaking at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, he said buildup covers all military domains and capabilities. That includes naval ships, fifth-generation aircraft, missile forces and cyber, as well as space and strategic nuclear capabilities. Aquilino stressed the importance of Guam to the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific. The island is home to more than 120,000 U.S. citizens, but it's now facing a 360-degree threat from rocket forces within the People's Liberation Army. And Aquilino pointed to the U.S. partnership with Japan and South Korea, saying the U.S. can operate as a joint force across vast distances. 
The U.S. Air Force is reacting to the development of advanced fighter jets by foreign adversaries like China. The Air Force is reactivating a squadron that includes F-35s, one of the most advanced stealth fighter jets in the world. Let's take a look. The U.S. Air Force reactivated the 65th Aggressor Squadron in a ceremony at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada earlier this month. The new unit also gets its first F-35 stealth fighter jet. During a combat training mission with other pilots, the 65th Aggressor Squadron replicated the tactics and techniques of U.S. adversaries. General Mark Kelly heads the Air Combat Command. He said they are doing this due to the growing threat posed by Communist China's development of fifth and sixth generation fighter jets. And that, quote, precisely because we have this credible threat, when we do replicate a fifth-gen adversary, it has to be done professionally. The F-35 stealth fighter jet is a fifth-generation fighter jet because it has low observable technology. The only other countries that operate fifth-generation jets are China and Russia. Colonel Scott Mills commands the 57th Operations Group. He said that using the F-35 as an aggressor allows pilots to train against low observable threats similar to what adversaries are developing. The 65th Aggressor Squadron was active from 2005 and 2014, and back then they flew the F-15s, which are fourth-generation fighter jets, because they don't have stealth characteristics. NATO is planning its biggest overhaul since the Cold War. During a summit this week, leaders of the world's most powerful military alliance will show their strength and unity in support of Ukraine's resistance to Russia. NATO says it will change its language on Russia and describe it as the most significant and direct threat. NTD's Joy Duguid has the details. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, is meeting in Madrid this week with the Ukraine war as one of the main topics. The organization's secretary-general, Jens Stoltenberg, said the summit would be transformative for the alliance. At the summit, we will strengthen our forward defenses. We will enhance our battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance up to brigade levels. We will transform the NATO response force and increase the number of our high readiness forces to well over 300,000. Stoltenberg said the plan would constitute the biggest overhaul of NATO's collective deterrence and defense since the Cold War, and the alliance would decide on a new strategic concept for a new security reality. Our new concept will guide us in an era of strategic competition. I expect it will make clear that allies consider Russia as the most significant and direct threat to our security. Stoltenberg said Ukrainian President Zelensky would be invited to join the summit. The allies will agree to a strengthened comprehensive assistance package for Ukraine, with deliveries of secure communications, anti-drone systems and fuel. Over the longer term, we will help Ukraine transition from Soviet-era military equipment to modern NATO equipment and further strengthen its defense and security institutions. The Secretary-General said NATO's plan would also address China. China's neighbors, including Australia, Japan, New Zealand and Korea, have been invited to attend the summit for the first time. 
It will address China for the first time and the challenges that Beijing poses to our security, interests and values. Speaking before departing for the summit, President Tayyip Erdogan said Finland and Sweden must take Turkey's concerns into consideration. Turkey has blocked bids by Sweden and Finland to join NATO, accusing them of supporting groups Ankara views as terrorists. Joy Dugid, NTD News. The United States is drawing closer to one of its biggest allies in Asia. On Friday, the U.S. Navy's top commander in the Pacific told the Japanese defense minister that the U.S.-Japan alliance was the cornerstone of security in the Pacific. That's as Japan reports increasing threats from China, North Korea and Russia. I have to say that the security environment in the region has grown more severe. The Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces and U.S. Navy have established a close cooperative relationship so far, and the significance of this cooperation is only increasing. In response, U.S. Admiral Sam Paparol said this. I agree entirely with your comment of the increase in the severity of the security challenge in the Pacific. And I'm very happy to report to you that the tight coordination and integration of Kaijo Jetai U.S. Navy forces have paced and outpaced our potential adversaries' operation. Japanese authorities say that at least eight Russian and Chinese warships were spotted last week near Japan's coasts, and that Chinese Coast Guard ships have repeatedly infiltrated the Japanese-controlled East China Sea near the Senkaku Islands. Beijing also claims that area as its own. Japan's defense minister Nuburo Kishi told Paparo that the American naval presence in the region is indispensable to maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific, a framework that the Allies have promoted to counter China. Given the current tensions in the Indo-Pacific region, Kishi said that further cooperation between Japan and the United States is necessary. Japan has pledged to further bolster its military readiness over the next five years and is working on a revision of its security strategy in the face of international threats. The South Pacific island nation of Tuvalu stood by Taiwan during a United Nations Oceans Conference on Monday. Tuvalu Foreign Minister Simon Kofi withdrew from the conference after China tried to block their Taiwanese delegates from attending. Beijing claims Taiwan as its own territory, though it's never been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. The island is not a member of the United Nations and its citizens are unable to attend UN events. The island is largely excluded from international organizations that China is a member of. Taiwan's foreign ministry thanked Tuvalu for its support and condemned China, saying, quote, China's arbitrary pressure on member states has only once again revealed its nasty nature. In response, Beijing repeated its claim that Taiwan is part of China. Tuvalu has had diplomatic ties with Taiwan since 1979 and is one of just 14 states around the world that continue to have diplomatic relations with Taiwan rather than China. And Tuvalu isn't the only nation backing Taiwan. Guatemala's president expressed similar support in a media interview last week. Referring to his country, he said, quote, We are the largest ally that Taiwan still has, and while I am president, I will only recognize one China, and it is called Taiwan. That comes after related comments from Chinese state media Global Times. The publication had hinted that the country would turn away from Taiwan and towards China in an earlier article. 
Taiwan's Central News Agency reported that the president's comments marked the first time he had openly clarified Guatemala's stance on this issue since the Global Times article. Guatemala's foreign minister also reaffirmed relations with the U.S. and Taiwan and said the country will continue to maintain them at all levels. And coming up, our own Tiffany Meyer is in D.C. this week for a summit on religious freedom. She spoke with a former U.S. ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom about his take on the threat of communist China. Get the details and more after the break here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma sitting in for Tiffany this week. Now we hear from our own Tiffany Meyer, who's in D.C. She's there for a summit where religious freedom leaders and advocates from around the world are all gathered. What's the goal? To shine a light on those suffering for their faith. We're here in the nation's capital at the International Religious Freedom Summit 2022. And we're about to hear from Ambassador Brownback. He was the ambassador at large of international religious freedom during the Trump presidency. And he's still defending religious rights around the world today. Let's hear more. You mentioned before that China is at war with faith and it's a war they won't win. So why is that? Communist governments have tried to kill faith. Uh, since they've been in existence. Soviets tried to do it. They were officially atheistic. They were trying to kill the Russian Orthodox Church at first, and then they kind of tried to figure out how to manipulate it. Um, They just, they're never going to be successful. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. These are separate spheres, but you're never, they've never been successful, and they won't be. They'll be for a time. They'll be able to lock up pastors and priests. They'll be able to intimidate people for a while. But inside, there's still that yearning of the soul that a person has. And they're going, there's something else here that I want, that I need, that is what my existence is actually about. And over 80% of the world's population follows a faith of some type. They're yearning, they're seeking. It's within the heart of man. And governments, uh, particularly communist governments, try to subdue that and put it down and and, uh, feed people cake. And at the end of the day, it's just not enough. So what is it about these faiths especially that's so terrifying to, say, communist China? They saw it take down the Soviet Union. They saw what happened in Poland when uh, Pope, now St. John Paul, goes to Poland and says, be not afraid. The, The communists were dead in Poland from then on, because the people would, why am I afraid of these guys? Yes, they're in power, but there are a lot more of us than there are of them. Um, They studied the situation of how these governments fall. Um, And it happens in a number of different places where, what even really happened in the Roman Empire, if you look at it, the Christians were persecuted within the Roman Empire uh, for a long period of time, and then they eventually end up taking it over because just the witness of their faith, the beauty of their soul, uh, their willingness to go out and sacrifice for other people. And and people see that. They, They look at that and they go, that's different. Now, why are you different? And when they hear about that and they see a person's genuine love for somebody else, they just go, that's what I want. 
That's why they can't subdue it as much as they may try. And they'll lock people up, they'll beat people, they'll kill people, they'll, they'll uh, put you in second-class citizen status. All that's been tried, done, and ultimately it never works. And so from the individual level, what can people do to try and help? Yeah, I think the first thing is become aware. And, and find somebody. You know, there's so many people from other places around the world that are here in the United States now. You can find people in your own community that know people in Afghanistan or uh, Syria or that have been Vietnam or uh, that know somebody that's been persecuted and become aware, invite them into your community, go to a program, come to the International Religious Freedom Summit, uh, and then start activating on a particular cause. Maybe it's the Rohingya uh, being kicked out of Burma. Maybe it's the Uyghurs who, five years ago, people didn't even know what a Uyghur was, uh, who Uyghurs were. Um, I, I think that's the first thing. And then once that activism starts, and, and pray for people. Uh, that, that you want them to be free and experience um, the, the freedom to be able to pursue with their own soul what they see fit. This Friday marks the 25th anniversary of Britain heading Hong Kong back to the Chinese regime. For Hong Kong, the switch came with a promise from Beijing. Now a Hong Kong artist that fled his home tells NTD what happens when promises aren't kept. Eddie Atkin brings us more on this. Just 400 miles from Hong Kong, Taiwan saw an influx of Hong Kongers recently. Lang Wingki was one of them. This former Hong Kong bookstore owner was detained by police in China for five months for selling sensitive books about the Communist Party. When the British were ruling Hong Kong, they didn't give us true democracy or the power to vote. But the British gave Hong Kongers a very large space to be free. The problem now, it's not that Hong Kong doesn't have any democracy. It doesn't even have any freedom. When Hong Kong reverted to Chinese control in 1997, China had promised to rule the city within the one country, two systems framework for 50 years. That meant Hong Kong would retain its own legal and political system and freedom of speech that is unimaginable in mainland China. I was deceived. I was lied to like many of the Hong Kong <laughs> back in 1997. After the pro-democracy protests in 2019, China imposed a national security law that has left activists and others living in fear of arrest for speaking out. Hong Kong still looked the same, but as a well-known artist, Wong said, it's an illusion. But it's not real freedom. Because every night, you know, I'm worrying, if not for myself, that the police would uh, bust into my home 5 a.m. in the morning, or I'll be worrying for my friends that they got arrested. And this lingered for almost two years. Though Wong feels safe in Taiwan, life as an exile is not easy, and it took him some time to get familiar with his new home. But I think uh, living freely is more important than anything else. Lam and Wong often participate in protests against China, most recently attending a memorial in Taipei to mark the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, a crackdown on democracy protesters. Hedy Aitken, NTD News. A protest in Sydney, Australia erupted on Friday. Xiao Tian, China's ambassador to Australia, had been in the middle of a speech at the University of Technology, Sydney, when demonstrators interrupted. 
during his remarks to the university's Australia-China Relations Institute. Several protesters entered holding signs about Tibet, Xinjiang and Hong Kong independence. China is Australia's largest trading partner and the top customer for its iron ore. But relations between them have deteriorated in recent years. Beijing imposed an array of trade sanctions on Australian products in a move widely seen as retaliation. That's after Australia called for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And banned Chinese telecom giant Huawei from its 5G network, citing the Huawei ban. Ambassador Xiao blamed Australia for causing the breakdown of ties. He said the ban, quote, perhaps could be described as the first shot that really damaged our normal business relations. He also called for Canberra's newly elected government to take action. Australian Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles also made recent remarks about Australia's relationship with China. Thursday marked the last day of his visit to India. There, he noted that both India and Australia have significant trade ties with Beijing. But he touched on another aspect as well. Uh, you know, for India and for Australia, China is our largest trading partner. For India and Australia, uh, China is our biggest security anxiety. We're both trying to reconcile those things, which is not an easy problem to solve. The United States, India, Japan and Australia together make up the four Indo-Pacific nations known as the Quad. The Quad is seen as a counterweight to China. And that's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.